Welcome to Pull Quotes, a weekly podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Lydia Opera. And I'm Michal Stein. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, everyone. Hey, everyone. We're going to interrupt. <laughs> That's the sound of political enthusiasts watching the results roll in at the Gladstone Hotel in Toronto. On Monday, October 22nd, municipalities across Ontario elected their new mayors and city councils. But this was no ordinary election. On July 27th, already two months into the election period, Premier Doug Ford announced he would be reducing the number of city councillors in Toronto from 47 to 25. Until mid-September, most of the media coverage on the municipal election focused on the legal challenge brought forth by city councillors and Ford's use of the notwithstanding clause to maintain the council cuts. All of a sudden, we all had to become experts in constitutional law. This week on Poll Quotes, we take a look at how the media covered one of the stranger municipal elections in recent memory. So, Michal, did you watch the election results? I did, did you? I sure did. I don't know what was more painful, the election results or having a Ryan Seacrest type announce the results. This week, we'll be talking all about the role the media played and how the race panned out. Today, we're hosting a panel discussion with former municipal politics writer Jonathan Goldsby and freelance writer and columnist Sean McAuliffe. They'll help us break down what we can learn from the coverage of this election. Sean McAuliffe is a weekly columnist at the Toronto Star, co-founder of Spacing Magazine, author of Frontier City, The Trouble with Brunch, Full Frontal T.O., Exploring Toronto's Architectural Vernacular, and Stroll, Psychogeographic Walking Tours of Toronto. Sean also teaches at the University of Toronto and is an advisor to Progress Toronto. Jonathan Goldsby is the news editor for Canada Land and co-host of its show, Wag the Doug. Jonathan has written for Now and the National Post. With me here today, I have Sean McAuliffe and Jonathan Goldsby. Welcome. Hi. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, So I was watching the results come in at the Gladstone last night uh, where they were screening the CBC uh, internet screening (laughs) at the online coverage. And they were also there actually reporting from the Gladstone. Uh, Where were both of you? Um, I was at the Spacing Magazine election watching party at Popper's Pub upstairs, kind of like a, a old school Britishy kind of pub in Toronto, kind of the standard issue pub. But we wanted to have a, a, a release party that was on the on the um, subway line. Popper's Pub was where I was for election night 2006, but or part of it, the end of it. But since then, I've been, you know, I, I've more or less transitioned into journalism and uh, have been going to different campaign events. And this year, there being no Fords on the mayoral ballot, I went to John Tory's event. Although I didn't really need to. It was just nice to be somewhere while on my laptop burrowed into all the numbers. It is nice to be at these kind of events because you, yes. you've, it's like it's like the election is sort of not exactly abstract, but you see signs and everything and mm. reports. But then you're at the thing and you see all these exhausted uh, mm. volunteers yeah. and they're all happy or they're very sad. Um, yes. Where was the Tory one at? The Sheridan Center. Oh, yes, much, okay. sm- uh, much scaled down from his Liberty Grand mm-hmm. victory party in 2014. Not that I went to that one. So what were your thoughts on um, the CBC deciding not to broadcast their uh, election coverage on television? It was extraordinarily disappointing, and I'm sure it was no, not disappointing to anyone more so than the CBC journalists themselves. I mean, this is, I feel like this is all so obvious, but what's the point of having a public broadcaster if not to broadcast the 
you know, municipal elections in the most populous province in the country. Not that I would expect them to be broadcast nationwide, but it's the most basic elemental public service there is. Which, I mean, the whole point of CBC, the entire the, the entire objective of it is that it's supposed to be accessible on platforms, whatever platforms Canadi- Canadians need or want to be on. And for many people, that is certainly online. For many people, that is radio. But for many people, that is absolutely the television. In the original quote that, uh, the original statement that Chuck Thompson, the CBC spokesperson, gave to Canada Land, Thompson is usually very careful in his language, usually, especially when communicating with us, very careful in terms of what he gives us to work with. Um, but he directly said, uh, you know, that but one of the reasons was their commitments to advertisers, uh, which is a phrase that he did not include in his statement to the Star and that they didn't include in the statement to the Globe. Um, and I'm sure he regretted having said that because that was probably the most basic, honest answer that they had sold ads for a season's worth of Murdoch mysteries. And they couldn't just, they didn't want to say no to their advertisers in the most populous province. Hmm. Sean, what were your thoughts? Well, the Murdoch mysteries are a great set in Toronto show, celebrating our, mm-hmm. our recent past. Uh, but still, I, I pretty much in, in entire, entirely in, in agreement with you, Jonathan. Um, it's so hard to get people to like care about civics um, and to take it off like the network broadcast um, and like like you say relegate it to the web. Um, and these these journalists did such incredible work, uh, hard work. It had to have been so disappointing. Um, and it's, if it's not in people's like living room, and I know there's people have a hundred channels or four hundred channels to choose from, you know, but the CBC is still the CBC. It's still mm-hmm. this kind of mothership thinger that we have in every home in Canada, more or less. Um, and, and to have it sort of there in front without the option, without having to opt into it uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, um, it just it just seemed to me it was kind of um, a little bit depressing because it seemed like the the job of teaching civics, of getting people excited about this, mm-hmm. of, of understanding why municipal politics matter is even harder now um, because because the CBC is not showing it, right? If the right. CBC is not showing it for a lot of people, it means it's not important. Um, yeah, so a bit, a bit dis- quite a bit disappointed in that. And so not only is the CBC the, the broadcaster for the country and, of course, the province, uh, but, of course, they're also covering these provincial elections. And something that I was quite surprised by and surprised by in the broadcast as well as all of a sudden we saw that Patrick Brown won the mm-hmm. mayoral race in Brampton. Uh, and that to me came a little bit out of left field and I kind of got the feeling that it hadn't necessarily been covered very well. So is there a, a way in which we're also missing coverage in those regions? Oh yeah, that's that's a real problem. Like. The Peel region has, what, 1.4 million people, give or take, Mississauga and uh, Brampton and Caledon. Um, and there's just a handful, I think I can almost count on my hand, maybe one a bit of the other hand, how many reporters are there. And like, you know, it's 1.4 million people, that's billions of dollars, just like Toronto, um, and hardly any journalistic oxygen kind of breathing into it and covering it. Um, and same goes for the rest of the 905 and beyond. Uh, incredible 
populations being underserved because there's nobody, uh, very few people, except mm -hmm. for a few very, very hardworking um, reporters um, covering all that. And you think about like just, just Toronto and you have like this army of the Toronto Star with uh, reporters out there uncovering things, just little things in council races, um, as well as uh, the other media outlets, um, uh, uh, whiffs of malfeasance and all these like little things. Um, and, and, and even with as limited as it is now in Toronto, and we still kind of have a lot relative to mm. other places, um, not enough gets uncovered, right? Mm. And so you can imagine how much news goes unnewsed um, out in these places where a lot of Canadians live. So it's, mm. uh, I think it's a, a big problem for local democracy. It's, I mean, once again, it's like such a cliche to say it's a looming crisis for local democracy, but oh my God, it absolutely is. Yeah, once again, if you just look at Toronto and how much does rely on the, the skills and talents of a handful of individuals and then just try to imagine organizations of, of near equal size going entirely under scrutinized. It's really remarkable to think about what's going to happen next. And frankly, we there's a lot of things we'll probably never, ever find out about. One historical tidbit I love is that the Star used to have um, bureaus in like Scarborough and Etobicoke mm -hmm. and North York. I remember talking to Royce and James once and he said he got to start at the Scarborough Bureau. So he went out to Scarborough mm -hmm. every day and reported on Scarborough from Scarborough, you know, not occasionally, you know, dropping in. Well, uh, they were their own cities and John yeah. Fillion, the city councillor, got to start at the North York Bureau. Yeah, so you, like there's this glory day of glory days of um, of maximum coverage, which almost mm -hmm. seem like like a fiction right now. Even when I started, you know, interacting, engaging with City Hall first as an activist and then as a journalist back in 2005, 2006, the Star would send reporters out to the different community councils. City council, I'm not sure what it's going to look like in the new council, but typically. Yeah, it's been divided into different quadrants of the city with councillors meeting specifically to deal with local issues. Mm -hmm. And the Scarborough Community Council meets at the Scarborough Civic Centre, the Etobicoke meets at the Etobicoke Civic Centre, North York one meets at the North York Civic Centre. The Star Bureau used to div divvy themselves up and each one go and spend the day at the, lo at the respective place. And I'm pretty sure that does not happen anymore. So to shift gears a little bit, uh Aziza Kanji wrote a piece for Now called uh, Toronto Election 2018, The Color-Coded Race for Mayor. Uh, she writes, reporting on the Toronto mayoral election as a two-horse race not only anticipates the election's outcome, but fundamentally skews it. She cites pieces from The Globe, The Star, Toronto Sun, and the CBC as essentially portraying the election as a two-person race, fundamentally overlooking candidates like Sarah and Gebra Selassie. So, Jonathan, mm -hmm. you pointed out on Twitter uh, that based on the results, uh, city council would be 85% white and 69% male. Uh, and mm -hmm. this, as you said, is from the gender split is on mm -hmm. par since 2000, mm -hmm. uh, but 15% people of color would actually, sadly, still be a new record in a city where 51% of the population mm -hmm. is not white. So, what do you think are some of the factors that lead to certain candidates being covered more than others and why do you think this was treated as a two-horse race coverage is only coverage is only part of it i think there, there are a lot of systemic barriers and a lot of different reasons why either in some cases people don't run but more likely more but more so why people do run and have an incredibly difficult time getting in and there's a whole bunch of different reasons in terms of the way the elections are structured, in terms of the way politics are structured, in terms of the fact the fact that there's no parties and name recognition incumbency has a massive advantage. 
Uh, and, and additionally, in particular, with this election, with the number of seats being cut in half, the incredible the emphasis on incumbency and the fact that so that very few wars didn't have an incumbent made it even harder for people to break in, than just the, the sheer amount of racism that and other and other forms of discrimination that candidates face. In terms of the mayoral race, the dynamics are slightly different than they are in council races. Um, in council races, incumbents almost always run and incumbents almost always win. And there's generally less media coverage overall. And so it tends to, there tend to be a number of particular local factors that go in, you know, to figuring out, like, that go into deciding, like, who has an edge or an advantage. And it's usually, if it's not an incumbent, then it's usually a person who is related to or related to someone who has held elected office or who has held elected office previously or has worked at City Hall. With mayor, it's a little weirder and a little more challenging because there are 35 people running for mayor. And that's about standard. That's usual. And so there's always a degree of arbitrariness necessarily in terms of how the race is covered, in terms of who is and who is not considered a legitimate candidate. And looking at the past several elections, that's the criteria that have been applied and the way that people, the way that elections have been framed by the media and largely, actually largely by pollsters in terms of determining like who gets taken as a serious candidate up front. Um, those criteria have changed and have shifted. And you, but usually, as far as there's a one specific thing, it comes down to who has held elected office previously. And then, of course, once you get into that, then you get into looking at all the other levels of systemic barriers that make it harder and more challenging for people to hold elected office. So, down to the question of how did the media choose to cover who they chose to cover? I mean, obviously, there's the incumbent. Yeah. Obviously, there's the former chief planner, who, even as someone who had never previously held elected office, is itself an odd one out because it's actually kind of like. It's kind of unusual for for the incumbent mayor to not be challenged by anyone who is currently or has ever held elected office, just as it was weird for John Tory, the incumbent mayor, to have not previously sat on city council before he before he himself became mayor. That that hadn't happened in over a hundred years. Um, so then there's the question of once you if you if you can reasonably group out the people who the incumbents and anyone who has held elected office. What do you do with the other thirty or so, and how do you how do you break those down and determine who gets which platforms? And that's always a very challenging thing. In the past, it's been a somewhat easy system to game. Um, certain candidates have had the facades of campaigns, the uh, enthusiasm, and sometimes that's enough. And often it's. Comes, sometimes it comes down to expertise and experience and qualifications, past engagement with local issues. But there's no one really good answer. And in this case, in, in this year, there's the additional twist of having a neo-Nazi sympathizer who was very adept at getting attention in a way that all the past neo-Nazi sympathizers who have run for mayor have not been. <laughs> or at least it's been decades since one has been had that success and so trying so there's that was the other thing was media trying to find ways to create standards or write rules that would not have to necessarily include this neo-nazi sympathizer who would have been a marginal candidate even if she weren't a neo-nazi sympathizer simply by virtue of having had no previous experience expertise interest or engagement in municipal or other politics right so let's let's talk about that a little bit more She, I believe, entered the race around the same time as Jennifer Keys, Matt. Right? Same day, within like an hour of each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a 
an interesting piece uh, by Denise Balkasoon in The Globe on September 26th, uh, where she says, Faith Goldie doesn't want to be mayor of Toronto. Um, and she basically says in this piece, um, I don't think that Miss Goldie is especially different from other unsavory characters who've tried to squeeze into the spotlight by running for office. That's an old trick. Another fringe mayoral candidate in this very election is due to go to court on charges of willfully promoting hate against women and Jewish people. What's different, of course, is the era, one in which self-promotion is cheap and easy, and traditional journalists don't quite know how to employ balance, fairness, and free speech against those who purposefully manipulate them. Um, so knowing what we know now, which is that she got, she came in third place and got over 25,000 votes in an election where it, I don't know what the numbers are in terms of the percentage of voting population that actually did vote. Um, I don't know yet. Yeah. But, um, but 25,000 still feels like a big number for a fringe candidate. Um, mm-hmm. So what what do you think this election has taught us about covering white supremacists? Well, yeah, it's for sure. It's a, and I think Denise got to that. It's a dilemma for you know reporters, columnists. Like, do they cover this person? Somebody tweeted at me yesterday when I tweeted 25,000 people voted for this person in Toronto. They said uh, they're from Hamilton. And they said, our neo-Nazi only got 400 votes but had no media coverage as a as, as sort of comparison. Um, but I, I do think Faith Goldie was a bit of a different character because she mm-hmm. already had profiles. She was getting attention from the United States. Mm-hmm. She was getting incredible amounts of money through her uh, Patreon or however she raises money. Um, uh, and, um, and 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 I wondered, and I think a, a number of people kind of like um, uh, to, to kind of grappled with this. Uh, I think a lot of the, the way she presented herself in this race um, was a kind of like a, a legitimate candidate you know she didn't talk so much about yeah. her, that past and is it incumbent on the media to remind voters of that past and if we just ignore her, her she's able to present a um, you know you know whatever story she wants um, or, or do we tell people do we remind people to uh, of this uh, other uh, other life that she's that, that she has well past and present I mean it's definitely yeah. correct that she presented herself as no more right-wing or racist than Giorgio Mammoliti. Like, mm-hmm. basically, that's as far right as you can get in the civic sphere and still be considered a, at least nominally legitimate politician. Um, when she entered the race, I and I think others were initially very concerned that mainstream media unequipped, unfamiliar with her or unequipped to deal with that kind of candidate would simply portray her as the conservative candidate or just another conservative candidate. Um, Adrian Batra, the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun, on the CP24 panel live that afternoon when on the last day of registrations, did describe her as, you know, conservative commentator Faith Goldie. I mean, maybe she wasn't thinking, I don't know how much to actually is fair to read into that, but I mean, there was definitely a concern that that's how she would continue to be characterized and described. Overall, I'm actually pretty impressed that the media, by and large, did a fairly good job of keeping her in perspective and keeping her in context. Outside of just a couple of Toronto Sun columns and one very eager Toronto Sun columnist tweeting about her, um, and possibly some coverage in non-English media, though I have to look into that more, uh, I think she was treated proportionally for... A fringe candidate 
and especially one who was so desperate to for attention. And I think media pretty much saw through that. Some of the best takes on her mayoral campaign actually came from Ezra Levant, which is beyond, which kind of shocked me. I didn't know he was capable uh, or had the capacity to actually have lucid takes on anything. But uh, yeah, no, he, he dismissed her ambition. Like, you know, he's like, this is yeah, just a, on a number of occasions, you know, it's just a publicity stunt, it's a vanity project. I don't think she wants, she didn't say, I don't think she wants to be mayor. I don't think she has the skills to be mayor. And you can't just, you know, go on a, as you said, a one year racist bender and then pretend that never happened. You right. have to own up to that. And she didn't. So, going off what you're saying about Faith Goldie, that there is this whole, uh, she has this whole reputation. She has this past of mixing in with the alt-right and uh, mixing in with white supremacists. And perhaps there's some element of forgetting that or that it doesn't matter to the 25,000 people who voted for her. Um, meanwhile, we also have Patrick Brown, who was just elected mayor in Brampton. And uh, very recently, in February, so what's that, like seven or eight months ago, uh, was accused of sexual misconduct. And um, and yet he has now been elected mayor. Uh, do you feel that perhaps the media might bear some responsibility for not making that more part of the conversation in his mayoral run? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, you say his name and... I think immediately that scandal, um, to, it's not it's more than a scandal, uh, comes to mind. So it's almost hard to separate them. And I thought at first, um, like last night was a bit of a surprise to me because I thought he was a bit of, you know, like his nine lives were over, his nine political lives were over. And that, that, no, no, I guess not. Uh, the people of Brampton have decided. Um, and it was such a high profile uh, uh, case and only seven months ago as you say like it had to have been on the minds of the majority of voters and they decided to overlook it could could, could the media reminding them of that of, of that story uh, would that have made much of a difference probably it would have definitely made made a difference how much of a difference though is mm. I think a real, real open question because there are there is no shortage of people who genuine, genuinely believe he was hard done by and a victim of a a witch hunt or some other conspiracy. Usually, there are yeah. many, many conspiracy theories and who believe he was screwed over. And without discounting the remote possibility that there may be some truth to some one conspiracy theory or another, there has been very limited focus or description of what he is actually alleged to have done. Yeah, but I also, like... What sort of coverage had, did the Brampton mayoral race get? I mean, it got some, largely by virtue of him being in it. If he hadn't been in it, I assume Linda Jeffrey would have, you know, breezed to re-election. But, but I mean, once again, like, despite Brampton having a substantial population, local politics, I just assume, does not get the same degree of scrutiny or coverage in a city like that. Yeah, the Globe had a big um, profile on him a couple weeks ago of him shuffling through the subdivisions of Brampton, you know, it's a very hot day, you know, his shirt looked damp, um, and just sort of like his, his, as you say, kind of energizer bunny mm-hmm. persona of going and going and going. Um, I don't think the Globe or any paper would have given that much space to the Brampton mayoral run. No. Unless you had this, this guy with this history in there. So I wonder if, 
the thought just popped into my head. Oddly, did the media coverage that he got um, any any of it actually put his name in people's minds more? Uh, I mean, I there are know. a couple. Th- I mean, if any election, especially any two way election, becomes defined around the question of a given person, like that person has already successfully framed the discussion. They have a substantial edge. So something we've kind of been alluding to the whole time but haven't really hit on the head yet is the fact that the real story of this election was cutting Doug Ford mm. cutting it down from 47 wards to 25. What impact do you think that that had on the way that the election itself was covered? I think we talked about that so much. I, I remember like one or two weeks after that announcement on July 27th. Um, I was like, I joked, I can't remember what I was upset about before, right? Because I'm only upset about this. This, right. is, this is like the supernova that got all our attention. And, and oh, yeah, what about housing and transit and all these other things that, you know, uh, we should be talking about? We're talking about the this actual meta thing that landed, uh, which maybe was the point of that. So um, with, with with the truncated um, election cycle uh, and then this, this, this black hole of news that we just kept going on about and then the notwithstanding thing in the court cases like that thing went on forever and ever uh a month and a half i think till early september Mm -hmm. um that's an incredible amount of time we could have been talking about other stuff and maybe like i was surprised that uh back in june i thought that the um the amount of pedestrian and cycling um uh fatalities and injuries that were happening on the street was going to be a mayoral issue i could give i know it's very naive but uh but but it just that felt like it right and um uh, and, and boy, was I naive. Um, that, that 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 did not matter, right? It, it, uh, so you know, the things that sh- the things that should matter almost never end up being the thing. Even the things that people in polls say they care about, and I believe that the people do care about. Somehow, not somehow, it's like it's pretending it just happens. But like, for through a variety of reasons, never end up becoming never end up becoming the ballot issue. Yeah, the Toronto that people I think dream of and, and want, actually want, if you talk to them, you know, somehow without the politics, um, is not the Toronto that they will vote for. What do you think uh, specifically was missing in the coverage, so therefore the public's understanding of the changes in these wards? Well, there's already an incredibly low amount of uh, civic knowledge about municipal politics um, you know it's it, it, it's the one that affects people's daily life the most but it has the lowest voter turnout um, some candidates that I talked to for the last election said that when they were doing going door to door canvassing they had to like teach people about how city hall works uh, had to tell people that you get to vote for a councillor when you vote for the mayor you know they thought mm-hmm. they were just the mayor um, Trustees, those are the, that's another planet. Um, so, so you're already dealing with this um, this really low level of, of civic knowledge. Um, and 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 I pay like Jonathan was saying, I pay attention to this. We pay attention to this. I don't know. What, I don't. I couldn't tell you my ward right now. Um, it was like this. The, the the playing field was always spinning. So if people that are kind of <laughs> supposed to pay attention to this stuff don't know what's going on, um, that level of confusion will immediately. Turn, turn so many people off of something that um, takes an incredible amount of work just to get people engaged and, and, and tell them why it matters. Um, so it was, it was like, which issue? It's like, it's like all of them, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I want to say, which is, which is a lazy answer, but, um, but yeah, it, it just, it, it was so daunting, you know, uh, uh, having, having that, that, that shock to the system and, and all the like incremental work of getting 
additional people on board about why this matters, why say why they have to pay attention to City Hall, and then just seeing it kind of like go up in smoke. Mm-hmm. To end off, what do you think we need to see more of so that we can keep an eye on those changes? I think we need to teach civics more. I mean, this is this is like going way back, um, starting early grade school. Um, we don't teach. I think I think students right now in Ontario get something like a half credit yeah. in in high school, which is what half a semester or something like that. Yeah. In grade ten, maybe. Um, and 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 we need to we need to in, in, instill it in people's in in kids' idea of you know they they in grade two they know how to play sports they know how football baseball etc works well some did i didn't know how football worked yeah, um, complicated. yeah. okay but soccer we know how that works yeah. right so just getting kind of planting the seed really early that mm-hmm. this stuff matters so we don't have to you know that people kind of grow up with it um i'm embarrassed that i, I did two poli sci degrees um in windsor uh my hometown and i never went to windsor city hall once um and it was only after i finished my ma moved to Toronto I went to City Hall um, and I'm forever embarrassed that I overlooked it because I thought there was even as a political science student there was sexier levels of government if you called levels of government sexy uh, but you know political theory and all that kind of stuff that was glamorous um, I, I, I overlooked it um, somehow and this is this is like a societal wide project of, of getting people um, uh, back into paying attention to local politics and it's 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 going to be a huge long long project i think there was a tremendous amount of civics education and enlightenment in this election but it was you know is the part of it we never really we seldom have to think about when unless there's you know a crisis even if you look at compared to compared to a decade ago the the degree of civic literacy that has been gained in this period is actually astonishing, thanks largely to Rob, the Rob Ford era, and that forced us to pay attention to it. And the fact that you know, when you and I started going to City Hall, what we were like the only you know, type the people like who involved in the spacing or the Trump like space committee, we were the only ones there who weren't lobbyists or who weren't there as media or were, had some professional reason to be there. We were there because it was interesting and important, mm-hmm. and there were opportunities to make a difference. And now, I think a lot, I mean, partly it's a function of Twitter, but a lot more people are engaged than ever before. And I do see that as, I do see that as encouraging. Sean McAuliffe and Jonathan Goldsby, thank you very much for being with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And now for our signature segment, Pull Quotes. Michal? What's your pull quote? So in borrowing from you from last week, my pull quote this week is also a tweet. Um, It's actually a thread from Emily Mathieu at the Toronto Star. And uh, I highly recommend everyone go check out this thread because it's a really good look at how journalists can correct themselves when they realize that they've made an error. Emily Mathieu had been covering the Ward 12 election, uh, St. Paul's, and this was Josh Matlow versus Joe Mahevic, who had both been incumbents in their respective wards when they were two separate wards, but now we're up against each other. And so Emily Mathieu uh, said, as part of his speech, Matlow pledged to work with Mayor John Tory if he promised to put people before politics or said he would stand up against him if Tory chose to put, quote, politics before people. 
She then says, I crank out a story, send it to my editor, and rush to a second location to get some quotes from Joe Mahevic. What I had done and did not realize was I left out a couple of very important words. The top of the story says Matlow would work with Tori if he put, quote, politics over people. And then she says, that is not, if it is not clear at this point, Josh Matlow's position. And so then she kind of explains the whole process of how the mistake got made and how uh, they work to correct it. And uh, I thought it was a really great look into, um, first of all, the fact that reporters are humans and we make mistakes and we mix up our words. I do it all the time. Uh, but there is a way to take accountability for it. And I thought that this was really great. It's really, really important that we do that as journalists. All right, Lydia, what's your pull quote? I want to talk about Desmond Cole's post um, withdrawing his endorsement for Saron Gabraslase. Cole withdrew his support um, after finding out that Gabraslase has um, received what he called material support from John Tory's campaign. Here's what he had to say in his post. In my experience, making compromises with our political opponents can sometimes help boost one person or one campaign. But I see no greater benefit for the community that is intentionally being kept in the dark. Most of all, I see such behavior as a fundamental failure to tell people in community what you're doing and why you're doing it. Once a political leader has decided to do things in our name without informing us, they have violated our trust and our right to informed representation. After that post came out, it really shaped the conversation around Gabriel Lasse the day before the election. That's it for this week, folks. Thank you for listening. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Jonathan Goldsby and Sean McAuliffe for joining us today. Thanks to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help with this episode. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at Michal Stein 2 And me at Liddy Abraha. You can also visit rrj.ca for news stories every week. We'll see you next week on Pull Quotes. <laughs>